Amen. Well, Father, we, we love you, Lord, and we are so thankful for your joy. Thankful that your joy is not something that's dependent on our circumstances, is not dependent on our burdens, is not dependent on our responses. It is a gift from God. God, that if we open our hearts before you, that you will fill us. You say, come to me and I'll fill you. Lord, as we come to you this morning, and we want to be filled. God, we want to be filled with truth. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with joy. We want to be filled with the love, the agape, the hesed of our Father. So God, I pray that as we come to you, as we hear from your word, uh, God, that it would create in us expectation. God, an expectation that you will speak to us. An expectation that you are real. An expectation that you really did come. You really did live. You really did die. You really did rise again. You really are reigning in heaven. And that you really are showering your grace and favor on your children. God, I pray that it wouldn't just be us, but it would be every church in our city, in our state, in our nation, in the world this morning would join our hearts together in worship of you. Let's take joy in the God of our salvation today. We love you. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. We're doing this a little bit differently today. Uh, so we are doing the Advent candles this morning, and, and this candle is joy. Uh, and I'm going to kick it over to the Blankenbeckers to introduce themselves and to read the scripture for us today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 1 as well to follow along with them. Hey, good morning. Hey, I'm, my name's Zach Blangenbaker. Uh, this is my wife, Bailey. Um, we've been with CBC Richmond Hill for about a year, a little over a year, really. Uh, currently, we serve with your kindergartners. Honored to serve, really. Um, and today, you know, we also get the honor of lighting the candle of joy. Um, so if you would, please turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this grant to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be the fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about the months and returned to her home. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Well, good morning. How y'all doing? Awesome. I'm so glad I didn't have to read this, this passage. It's great. I love hearing it instead of having to read it and preach, but such a joy today. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question to start out this morning. I, I typically, 
I've kind of thrown off. I typically start out by reading, and so I don't know what to do with myself now. Andrew always tells a story, so I'll ask a question. I have to say rhetorical because the middle school boys in the room will answer it. Um, but w- when you think about the kindest person you know or figure in TV or a book or whatever it is, who comes to mind? Someone? See, I told you, middle school boys. Kind. Who, who, someone that's just kind. Like, you can't, can't cont- just awesomely kind. I, I thought of a couple people. A grandpa? By their grandpa come to mind? Anybody? Nobody. Okay. Mean grandpas in the room. We had one grandpa that came to mind last service. Buddy the Elf? Anybody? Just like super kind, wants to give everybody a hug. Um, I, I thought, this is a weird one, I thought of the ghost of Christmas, Christmas present, right? Just this, you know, you're blank. This, he's like this jolly old, like not young man, who's like red beard and his face is like beaming with light and he comes into a room and he's huge and he's laughing and he's got like a cornucopia of food all around him. He's just this jolly person in, in whose presence you forget all of your worries and all of your fears, Right? So oftentimes, that, that's what we can think about, right? Someone like that, someone that comes around us like Buddy the Elf and just kind of lifts us out of our sorrows. And, and, and we can imagine for a little bit that, that all of our hard things in our life aren't there anymore. Well, when I was thinking about kindness this morning, really, uh, what we're, what my goal today is for us to behold the kindness of God together this morning. And I've spent the last two weeks with Mary and Elizabeth in this passage, and what I really see is God's kindness, over and over and over again, God's kindness to Mary. But his kindness is way different than human kindness. It's way different sometimes than the kindness we want. The kindness that we typically have with humans is that we, someone's so kind that they make you forget about the struggles of your life. They help you out of them. But God's kindness is different. God actually enters in with you to the hard things in life. He comes alongside you in it, and he blesses you in the midst of it. And, and if you're not careful, you'll miss his kindness. If you don't see that God is a God who actually uses trials and sufferings and hard callings in your life for your joy, then you will totally miss his kindness. And that's what we see today with Mary. The Hebrew word for this incomprehensible kindness of God is hesed. And hesed is this word, it's love, but it's more than love. It's a love that expresses itself in in the intangible grace and mercy and goodness towards the beloved. And that's the type of kindness that God has towards us. And that's what we're going to see today as God's kindness towards Mary. So my goal today um, in this sermon is, is to magnify the kindness of God. Um, but I'm not going to preach on kindness. I'm just going to walk through this text. And I'm going to just give you a fire hydrant of what I have seen in this passage as I have been studying over the past couple of weeks. And I, I love it. I feel utterly inadequate to preach this song. It's one of the more famous passages in Scripture. But uh, let's dive in together. So as we, as we jump in, I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory. So if you remember from last week, um, the passage before, we're picking up midway through a story. And Mary had this angelic visitation from an angel named Gabriel, right? And so angel, this angel comes in a room. He's one of the angel, archangels, probably on the right hand of God, just beaming, bright, ferocious, scary, comes in and says, blessed are you among women. And she is just, her socks are blown off. She has no idea what's going on. And she has this interaction with an angel. And after the interaction with the angel, the angel tells her that in your womb, there's going to be the Messiah, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, and you will bear God's Son. And she says, how do I know these things are true? And the angel says, a sign for you will be that your cousin, Elizabeth, is going to be with child. Now, Elizabeth has been barren her whole life. She's infertile. She hasn't been able to bear children. And she is probably between 60 and 80 years old now. It says she is well past childbearing years. Okay, so that, that is an impossible sign. So you could have given me a feasible sign, but that's an impossible sign that God gave Mary. And so what we ha- have is Mary wakes up the next morning and thinks, baby, angel, me, 
are you sure? And she's doubting, so she says, I'm going to go check that sign out. So she goes with haste to the hill country of Judah to see her cousin Elizabeth, right? To confirm that what the angel said is true. So she rushes to Judah, and she walks in the door of Elizabeth's house. She says, Elizabeth, is Mary. And Elizabeth comes around the corner belly first. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Pregnant ladies, right? You, you feel like belly first and everything. Uh, it's right. That's what, and she sees Elizabeth, and she's like, whoa, and her, and her jaw drops, and she sees the goodness of God. And this is the first evidence I see of God's kindness towards Mary is this sign. God could have picked any number of signs. He could have had a three-legged camel march past her door. He could have had their, their palm tree bear apples. Like there could have been all kinds of signs, but God picked a sign that would confirm for Mary that God could do what he said he would do. He picked an impossible sign that couldn't have happened apart from miracle of God, and he picked another impossible pregnancy. And sometimes we can easily think that, man, the Bible's filled with barren women becoming pregnant. It actually only happened six times in the scripture, and it only happens one other time where a lady who is barren and beyond childbearing years becomes with child. You remember who that was? Abraham's wife, Sarah. And her son was Isaac, the son of promise, the one through whom all the nations would be blessed, the one that was the Christ figure in the Old Testament, this Isaac. And now, all of a sudden, there is another older woman bearing bearing this child in her later years. This is an impossible sign and a sign of God's goodness. So God sends Mary straight to Elizabeth. So who is Elizabeth? Let's turn our attention to her for a second. So think about Elizabeth's situation. Her husband uh, goes in his one time, once in a lifetime time to burn incense in front of the altar of God, and he becomes mute, right? Because he has an angelic encounter with Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him that they are going to bear this impossible child. So he comes out, they go home, and she begins to get pregnant. And what would have happened at that time is word would have spread. She's in this tiny town in Judah, and she would have people knocking on her door all the time, like wanting to see her mute husband and her pregnant belly and say, is this really true? Like, can this... 60 to 80-year-old woman really have gotten pregnant. This is amazing. So over and over again, she would have been used to people knocking on her door, coming in, wanting to see this baby. She would have been testifying to the joy of God over and over and over again, right? And so when Mary comes in and knocks on her door for the first time, Elizabeth's like, she's probably here to see me. She's probably here to hear my story. She's probably here to see what God has done to me, right? So in walks Mary, and Elizabeth comes around the corner, and then she sees Mary's jaw drop right? And she would have been used to that. Like everyone that walked in Elizabeth's house, jaw would have dropped to see a pregnant Elizabeth at this point in time. So she's used to that. And, um, and, she, and she has news to share. So before Mary can even get a word in, Elizabeth starts talking, right? What is the news she has to share? What does Elizabeth say? Does she burst into an incredible story of what God's done for her? Does she share her moment? No. She blesses Mary. Look at the content of what she says. Verse 42. Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. For six months, Elizabeth has been saying, Blessed is me. Blessed is me. Look at what God has done for me. Blessed is me. And yet in this moment, she is attentive to the Holy Spirit, and she knows that this is not a moment for testifying. This is a moment for encouraging and blessing someone else. You know that Elizabeth's name means God's promises. That's exactly what Elizabeth fulfilled here. She called to Mary's mind the promises of God. And this is where I see a second sign of God's kindness to Mary, that God sent Mary to Elizabeth, the encourager. He could have sent Mary anywhere else, to anyone else's house, but God knew that that Elizabeth was the type of woman who listened to the Holy Spirit, who wasn't consumed with herself, and would be ready to encourage Elizabeth. God sent Mary to Elizabeth, the encourager. 
But not only was Elizabeth an encourager, she delivers to Mary something impossible. She has, points out five things that she could not have known other than a revelation from God himself. Let me tell you what they are. Look at this passage with me. The first one is this, that Mary is pregnant, okay? There is no way Elizabeth could have known that Mary is pregnant. Mary wasn't showing. She had just become pregnant at that moment, right? It's impossible, and yet the Holy Spirit revealed that to her. The second thing, that that baby she was pregnant with is the Messiah. Now, she might have had a one in a million guess that this 14-year-old girl was pregnant, but the fact that that baby was the Messiah who they've been waiting on, no way. Third thing that she couldn't have known, that the leaping in, in her tummy was John leaping for joy. Okay, think about that for a second. She felt a leap. How did she know it was for joy? Now, some of you pregnant women are saying, I know exactly what my baby's feeling, right? I feel the same thing, like we're synced up, right? You're not, okay? <laughs> Come talk to me afterwards. Like, you're not, right? But she knew. Why? Because God told her. That, that leap you just felt was John leaping for joy. Fourth, she knew that God spoke to Mary. Besides Zechariah's angelic encounter, you know when the last time God spoke to somebody? 400 years before. That's as if saying, like, well, this happened back in the 1600s, and so therefore it can happen again. That, that type of time lapse, we forget that things happen. We're like, God doesn't do that anymore. Yet Elizabeth knew. God spoke to Mary. And the final thing is that Elizabeth knew that Mary believed what God said. So what this tells me is this is not a string of good guesses. Elizabeth is not just really intuitive. Elizabeth heard straight from the Lord, and what that means is that she was so focused on not her own situation, but on the concerns of the Lord, that she was attentive to the Holy Spirit, that her eyes were open to see what God was doing in Mary's life. And let me tell you, we need more people in our church like that. We need more people in the church that, that aren't just so consumed with our own lives. Like, we, we can walk around so easily just focused on our burdens and our delights and ready to, to share what God's done and ready to complain about what he hasn't. And we can so, so seldom slow down with somebody and think, actually, let me lay aside my concerns for a moment. Say, well, God, what are you doing in this person? What do they need? Are, are you saying anything to them? Do you want me to encourage them in so way? That's exactly who Elizabeth was. Have you ever had that happen to you? Um, where, where someone just comes into your life out of nowhere and encourages you with an encouragement that felt like it could have only come from God? I remember, this happened to me a lot, but I remember one in particular. Um, we went to England for a year, and this was five years ago, and we're doing a pastoral training thing, and I dragged my family to the UK. And I, I, we, we flew over there. Anne was one, years old, uh, one year old, uh, and so we went over there. Uh, and, of course, the red eye over, did she sleep, my one-year-old? Now, anybody else been on an overnight plane ride? They don't sleep. And then what happens the next night? They don't sleep again, right? And so you don't sleep, and then they nap all day because they're tired. Do you nap all day? Uh-uh. So the third night in, I'm just toast. And, and my one-year-old is screaming her head off in the middle of the night. And it's, I remember it's 12 o'clock, and I am dying for rest. And I am, I'm crying, like grown man weeping. It's like, God, what have you done? And you know what it wasn't? It wasn't me being tired. It was, I was weeping that I, I drug my family, my, my wife and my one-year-old daughter, all the way over to this forsaken country where it, there's never sunshine. In, in England, ever, right? It's just cloudy and rainy and cold, and the people don't speak our language, right? They speak British, but it's different. And we were just, it's like, why did I do this? God, why did you do this to me? I was so burdened. And I remember crying out to God, Lord, wh- where are you? Are you here? And that next morning, I went to a, a, a meeting, and I shared our story. I didn't share any of that. Like, I, you know, I was this strong man. I shared our story of how God had brought us up there with all smiles. And afterwards, um, this man Immediately afterwards, he says, uh, Coleman, I didn't know who he was. He said, uh, I, 
I really think you need to know um, that God loves your wife and daughter way more than you ever will. And that, that he is a better father than you ever will be. And that he knew exactly what was going to happen uh, when you came over here. He knew the struggles you were going to face. He knew the tears that were going to be shed. He knew all the burdens you were going to face. And guess what? He knows your wife better than you do. He loves her better than you. He's a better husband than you are. Your God is a better father and a better, better husband than you ever will be. So why don't you entrust them to him? That's what he told me. And let me tell you, in that moment, after I had been weeping before the Lord and praying, it blessed my socks off. I had no idea what to say to that. That, that God had reached into my situation. And that guy, I don't even know if he knew what he was even saying to me. God reached into my situation and put his finger on me and said, I see you. I'm with you. I know you. I love you. Mary didn't walk away from Elizabeth's encouragement thinking, man, Elizabeth is such an encouraging person. She walked away saying, man, God is good. I tell you, I don't remember that guy's name. I don't remember his face. I don't remember anything about him, but I remember for that year clinging to those promises over and over and over again and proclaiming God's goodness in my life, right? And this is where I, I see um, God's kindness um, to Mary again is that he showed Mary that he was with her. And he showed her through this encouragement from Elizabeth. He said, I see you. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. And Mary needed that in the midst of her situation. Right? And what I find remarkable about this whole passage that we're about to dig into and, 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 and what happens here is that Mary's song that we're about to see did not come after Andrew's sermon last week. Okay? That it didn't come after her angelic encounter with Gabriel, right? I would think that would be a moment for singing, right? You have an angel appears to you. You begin shouting praises. You begin singing because that's what the angel's been doing for eternity. She didn't sing then. She didn't sing after seeing pregnant Elizabeth walk around the corner. Like the sign come true, an impossible pregnancy. Yes, God is, I can take God of his word. He didn't sing then. She sang after Elizabeth's blessing, after Elizabeth's encouragement. Let me just tell you, church, never underestimate the power of Christian encouragement. Never underestimate the power of slowing down, looking someone in the eye, and, and, and seeking, God, is there anything you want me to encourage this person with? Is there a scripture I read this morning you want me to share with them? Is there anything, any way you want me to ask them a question and dig into their life? Guys, that can be life-changing for someone. And it was life-changing for, for Mary here in this passage. But not only that, was Elizabeth's blessing encouraging, it was also a template for Mary's response. See, Mary is 12, 13, 14 year old, years old, she doesn't know how to carry this burden. She doesn't know how to carry this honor. Elizabeth, who's been walking with God her whole life, in her blessing, shows Mary how to respond to God. Let me show you what I mean. Mary's song was directed straight out of Elizabeth's encouragement. So if you want to look at Magnificat with me, verse 46. Every line of the first four verses here came straight from Elizabeth's blessing. So we're going to walk through it. I'm going to show you real quick. So let's look at the first one. Verse 46, Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies that Lord. That, that word magnify, megaluno, it means to, to proclaim something as great. It's, to, it's like a magnifying glass, right? You, you, you look at something and you can expand it and blow it up, except it's different from a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass takes something small and makes it bigger. But our God is huge. It's like a telescope. It is, it is taking a telescope and showing people maybe a smaller glimpse of how great our God is. So Mary magnified the greatness of God. Where does she get that? How does she know that her first response to this incredible privilege of bearing the Messiah needs to be magnification, needs to be proclaiming his greatness? She gets it straight from Elizabeth. Look in verse 42. Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There are two Greek words for blessed. 
One is makarios, which we're about to cover in a second. The other is eulogia. And eulogia is where we get the word, what? Eulogy, right? Y'all probably read about that in the devotional this week if you're reading along. Eulogy is where we get the word eulogy. And eulogy means to proclaim the greatness of, right? So Elizabeth said, blessed is God. That was Elizabeth's response. And so therefore, Mary says, blessed is God. Elizabeth teaches Mary that your first response to incredible hardship and incredible privilege needs to be worship. Let me ask you, how often do you, when when God has given you a great privilege, maybe it's a um, new responsibility at work, Maybe it's a higher paycheck. Maybe it's kids uh, for you to, to, um, to pour into. Maybe something good happens with your kids. Maybe you introduce them to an adult and your kid actually looks them in the eye and says hello, right? That big moment that happens once in a lifetime. How do we respond? I taught them that, right? I worked my tail off of that job. I, I did that, right? We steal the glory right out of God's hands, right? But Mary knows, no, no, no. I don't need to steal any glory from the Lord. Elizabeth just taught me that my first response needs to be praise, Are you missing opportunities to worship the Lord and to praise the goodness of his grace? That's the first thing I see. This is the second thing. Look at verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The typical Greek word for rejoice is karyos. And karyos is used hundreds of times in the New Testament, in the scriptures. That's that's the word for joy. This word is not karyos. This word is agalios. And agalios is very rare. It only appears six or seven times in the New Testament. Why is it used? Let me tell you about the word. Agalias is a combination of agon, which means much, and alias, which means leaping. Okay? So agalias means much leaping. It's a definition for a joy that is so um, expressive that it can't help but, but overflow in leaping. Right? It's the joy that Alabama's felt, uh, Alabama fans felt at the SC Championship when the rest didn't call the incomplete pass. Are you with me on that? They leaped. They leapt out of their seats, right? It's that type of joy that they're experiencing. That's what, that's what um, Mary is saying that she's experiencing, is these, this leaping joy. Where does she get it? She gets it straight from Elizabeth. Look in verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for agalias, leaped for leaping joy. The baby leaped for much leaping. This unusual word is used again. And what Elizabeth is teaching Mary is she's saying, hey, Mary, John the Baptist, in utero, sucking down amniotic fluid, is leaping for joy at the Messiah. And Mary says, man, if if John the Baptist in that dark place can leap for joy, then surely I can. Surely my joy can be better than that. Surely in the midst of my hard circumstances. Guys, Mary was about to go through a lot of hardship. She's about to go through nine months of shame. She's about to be uh, scorned by her town. She's about to be treated as an adulteress. An unmarried 12, 13-year-old girl who gets pregnant in that day and time um, was supposed to be stoned. But at the very least, she would have been shunned and kicked out of her household. That's what Mary's about to experience for nine months and really for the rest of her life. And yet, from Elizabeth, she knows, no, no, no. I'm not going to focus on that. God has given me a joy that overflows and a galias type of joy that I can have. Let me ask you, how do you respond to God's callings in your life? Let me tell you something, God's callings are always hard. Okay? Anytime God calls you to something, it will come with hardship. Whether it's a baby, God calling you to disciple and raise a child, you're thinking in your head, your first child, man, they're going to coo at me, they're going to laugh at me, it's going to be great, and get all warm and fuzzy inside, and then you have the baby, and you don't sleep, you don't eat, like the baby just poops all day long, like it's just crazy, right? It's, it's hard, right? And then they, the kid get older, it's like, man, surely when they can talk, it'll be easier. And what's the first word they say? No, 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 right? And then it's like, well, they can say complete sentences. And, and then it's worse. And then it's like, well, man, once they're in school, oh, 
it'll be better. Is it better in school? No, it's hard, right? And they get into middle school, and it's like, oh, man, I don't even know that yet, right? I got a six-year-old. Like, but you parents in middle school, I don't want to be there, right? It gets harder and harder, and yet it's good hard. And, but so often what we do is we focus on the hard things of God's calling in our life, and we totally miss that God has given you this calling for your joy. It's not just that. It's also maybe a raise at work. Uh, maybe it's a hard marriage that God has called you to steward and to build back up into something great again. Maybe it's an aged parent that is coming to live near you, and, and your calling right now is to walk with them through the last years of their life. That's hard. God's called you to it, and you can rejoice in it. Or maybe for you, you are that aged parent. Maybe you are that aged person that is walking through the final weeks and, and months and years of your life, and it's hard. You're losing your memory. You're losing your friends. Things seem to be melting around you, and yet your calling is to be faithful and to love the Lord Jesus through that. God's callings are always hard. And yet Mary teaches us in God's grace to Mary that we can rejoice with exuberant joy in the very center of it. This is where I see um, another evidence of God's grace to Mary is that he gave her grace for joy. He gave her grace for genuine joy. Listen, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, you can't produce Christian joy. You can produce fake joy. You can produce happiness on your own. You can smile and laugh, but true, deep, genuine, unshakable joy comes straight from God. It's a gift of his grace, and God gave that straight to Mary. Let's look at the, the third thing that we see here. Verse 46 for behold, is what Mary says next, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So after praising God first, then after leaping for joy, this is what she says, that, that God has looked upon me. That phrase looked upon in the Greek is epiblepo. Okay? It's a combination of two Greek words, looked and upon. And it's, it's different than how we use looked. It's like the, the old English word regard. Anybody a fan of Jane Austen novels? I'm going to put my hand down. Anybody? Yeah, there we go. We got one person. The rest of you don't want to admit it. All the guys in the room that have read Pride and Prejudice don't want to admit it. Um, so Jane Austen, when they say he regarded her, what do they mean? He loved her, desired her, longed for her. He would stop at nothing to have her as his own. That's the phrase that's used here for looked upon. God looked upon Mary, regarded her, wanted Mary as his own. But he didn't just see Mary like all dressed up and pretty said he looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That phrase means nothing to us. But at this time, that phrase was used for the lowest class of servant in that society. For someone that was constantly dirty because they were doing all the cleaning, who didn't have money to clean themselves up. And that's what she was. She was at the bottom of society. She had no standing in her society to speak of. Um, she, she was low. And yet, this isn't a Cinderella story. It's not like some fairy godmother made Mary all beautiful and she went to the ball and then the prince saw her and fell in love with her and then found out she was. It's not that. Mary really was low. She wasn't some princess in disguise. Mary was a slave. She was a servant. And yet she says, in the midst of my filth, in the midst of my poverty, in the midst of all the things about me that I'm ashamed of, God looked upon me. He regarded me and he desired me. And he said, I'm going to make her mine. I'm going to make that that child, that Mary, my own, and she's going to bear for me my Messiah. That's what Mary saw. That's where she got that perspective. Let me, let me ask, where did she get that perspective? Look at verse 43 with me. This is what Elizabeth said. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you hear that? That same humility. Elizabeth taught Mary, this is how you should respond to this privilege. You should respond with humility at the awe and the eyes of God on your life. Let me ask you, do you see that God sees you right now in your life? That he has looked upon you? I think a lot of times in our lives what we do is we hide the hard things. We hide the embarrassing things. 
we hide the bad days and we kind of bring to the Lord and bring to other people the good days and we think, man, God really loves me today. Like, God, God helped me at work because I did my quiet time this morning. Or, or I really, man, I really fought well in that sin struggle. And, and you feel all close to God because of how you're doing. That is not how God works. God pours out his grace on sinners every day. There's not a day in your life where you are pretty enough or good enough or clever enough or smart enough or talented enough to earn God's regard, his favor. Yet he pours it. He looks on your humble estate every day of your life. That is your God. Guys, we got to stop hiding those spaces of our lives from the Lord. We need to bring ourselves to him in full view and say, God, would you pour out your grace on me, a sinner? And that's what Mary, or Elizabeth taught Mary to do. And then the fourth thing that we see here, the fourth way that Elizabeth teaches Mary to respond is the second half of verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So after praising God, after leaping for joy, um, after responding with humility, God then re- Mary then recognizes that she is blessed. And this word blessed is makarios. It's not eulogia. It's not I, all generations will call me blessed Mary. They won't call me praise. They won't extol my greatness. They will call me makarios. Makarios means to, to receive from God a deep inner satisfaction and contentment. It's a satisfaction that's not based on external circumstances. It's not based on anything about you. It's something that can't be taken from you. And so Mary says, I, right now, and for the rest of my life, I am blessed. God has blessed me beyond measure. There's nothing that can steal God's blessing from me. Let me ask you, where, where did Mary get this? Straight from Elizabeth. Look at verse 45. Elizabeth says this, Blessed is she who believed. Makarios is she who believed. Elizabeth said, Mary, you are Makarios. You are blessed by God. You have a deep inner satisfaction that nothing can shake from you. And so, Elizabeth, so Mary says, God, I am blessed. I am Makarios. God has put his hand upon me. You see that? Mary taught Elizabeth how to respond. Mary taught Elizabeth to worship first. Mary taught Elizabeth to leap with joy. Sorry. Elizabeth taught Mary to do those things. Elizabeth taught Mary to leap with joy. Elizabeth taught Mary that she has an unshakable contentment and satisfaction in the Lord. Elizabeth modeled to Mary how to respond to the incredible kindness of God. Let me just tell you, this, we need this in our church. Like We need this in the church. is people who will stand alongside you and remind you again and again of the promises of God. Remind you again and again of God's goodness towards you. Remind you again and again that, hey, you're complaining a lot right now. But God has given you this calling for you to steward. Will you begin to worship and take joy in what God has given you? But Mary's song didn't come just from Elizabeth. Mary's song actually came straight out of Scripture. In this short song, are about 15 Old Testament uh, quotations. So, so let, me, let me just run through them, some of them with you. My soul magnifies the Lord, Psalm 31, 34.1. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, Psalm 35. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, 1 Samuel 1.11. For he who is mighty, Zephaniah 3. He has done great things for me, Psalm 126, 1 through 2. His mercy is on those who fear him, Deut- Deuteronomy 5.10. He has shown strength with his arm, Isaiah 51, and all over the scriptures. On and on she goes. Mary, again and again, is quoting Old Testament scripture. She's not just quoting word for word. She's paraphrasing it, which means that she knows it by heart and then can then apply it to her situation. Mary knew God's word deeply. And so what happened was when she encountered the angel, when she encountered the sign, when she she encountered the encouragement, she already knew how to respond. See, some of us think that, man, if I just had an angelic encounter with God, 
Like if God just met me in a powerful way, if he spoke to me, if he, if he did something cool in my life, then everything would be turned around. Like I would be able to seek him. I'd be able to, I'd be able to find him. I'd, I'd devote my entire life to him. Let me tell you, that's not the case at all. There are all kinds of angelic encounters throughout the Old Testament. And people responded exactly as they were ready to respond. Angels appeared to Lot, told him to get out of Sodom. You know what Lot did? He didn't get out of Sodom. The angel had to drag him out of there. An angel appeared to Balaam when Balaam was going to go sin against God. You know what Balaam did? Did he turn back around? No, he kept sinning. But when an angel appeared to to Joseph, and when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and when God appeared to John in Revelation, when God appeared to Joseph and Zechariah and Mary, do you know what they did? They responded. Why? They already knew God. They already knew the God of the Bible. So when the God of encounter came along, they recognized him. They were able to respond in kind. And that's the thing for you and I. If you don't know the God of the Bible, then when God encounters you, you won't even recognize him. You don't even know how to respond. You'll have no idea what just happened to you, and yet Mary can. Why? Because she knew the word. I'm going to have a quick little one minute aside to parents. How old was Mary? I remember. 12 to 14 probably. What does that mean about how much scripture she knew? Who taught it to her? Her parents, her grandparents, her Sunday school teachers. Like, Mary did not hide the word in her own heart. Mary had parents and teachers and people all around her that from a young age, from infancy, were hiding God's word in her heart. Let me tell you, parents, and those of you that are teaching our kids' classes, there is no greater gift you can give to a child than to teach them the word of God. It's not brainwashing. Brainwashing is, gonna, is what's going to happen when they get out of society. Brainwashing is removing truth and inserting lies. This is inserting truth, putting seeds of truth into their soul. This is the truth whenever and whatever next phase you enter your kid into, you you release them to school, you release them to sports, you release them to friends, you release them to college, you release them to the real world, they're going to be inundated by all kinds of messages. And you need them to be firmly founded on God's word. Will you begin teaching your kids the truth? Mary was able to respond to God because her parents and, and authorities in her life had poured the scripture into her. Mary knew the God of the Bible. And this is where I see the seventh kindness of God towards Mary is that God put Mary in a home where she would be taught to know God in his word. And and guys, the kids we have in this church have an unbelievable privilege to be raised in your home, to sit in your Sunday school class, to to be your grandchild, whoever you are in this room, and will you take up the, the joy and the calling and the burden to teach them the word of God? That's what happened in Mary's life. And we knew Mary's maturity because she was able to move. The first half of this song talks about her experience with God. She was able to move from her experience with God in the first four verses to who God is. And that's a mark of maturity in a Christian's life. When you can take, this happened to me, and that means this about God. So she said, this happened to me. God, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. He looked on my humble estate. All generations will call me blessed. This is what God's done for me. Therefore, this is what this means about God. So what does she say about God in this passage? Well, I was reading some different sermons. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has 10 attributes of God. This is an incredible sermon. I'd encourage you to read it called The Harp of Ten Strings. Way better than I could ever preach. Um, I, I saw seven in here, and I reduced it to four, and then three, and then I'm, I'm down to one. So I'm, we're going to talk about one overarching character, character attribute of God that Mary beholds in this psalm. It's called the condescension of God. When was the last time you used the word condescension? Anybody recently? No. Uh, the condescension of God, it's, it's an old theological word that we, that we used a lot in the past. Uh, but condescend is not a very popular word, is it? Uh, does anyone enjoy being condescended to? 
You know, last time you were condescended to? Um, condescension is when someone who thinks they're better than you comes to you and says, hey, little guy, right? It's like, it's like when you're in college or in high school and the girls, you did something and the girls said, oh, that's so cute, right? The worst thing ever. Like, it made you feel this small. Or, or someone says, oh, man, can, can I help you with that, right? And the guy, ladies in the room, you're probably like, sure. Guys, you're like, no way. Like, get out of here. No, you can't help me. I got it, right? Or, or maybe it's someone who's really wealthy and they're like, hey, let me just help you out a little bit. Um, maybe someone's like, man, let me get down on your level so I can understand what you're going through, right? That's condescension, and it's, and it's offensive, right? It, it's, it's, it's patronizing. It, it tears us down. Well, let's flip it a little bit. What about the condescension of God? What about God who really is better than you? God who is, who is affinity orders of magnitude stronger and richer and wiser and better than you are. What about that God? The God that made you for his glory. The God that you've rebelled against. The God that, that you can't even come close to. That God who you don't deserve one thing from condescends to you. He comes and he gets down on your level. He says, hey, can, can I help you with that? Hey, can, can, I, can I give you what I have? I see that you're struggling in this situation. Can I give you my grace? Can I get on your level so that I can sympathize with you in our weakness? When God condescends, far from being offensive, offended, we are honored. When he condescends, far, far from being patronized, we're sympathizing our weaknesses. When God condescends, far from being torn down, we are lifted up. And God's condescension is all over the rest of this passage. Look with me at verse 49. For he... God on high, who is mighty and who is holy, has done great things for me. You feel Mary, Mary would have said, for me. Like, surprise. Like, how, why did that God do great things for me? It's God's condescension. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The fact that God continues to bind himself in mercy to you and your kids and your grandkids, that is the condescension of God. He has shown strength with his arm. His strength is for you. That is the condescension of God. But then on the other hand, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. And the rich, he sends away empty. God, God doesn't associate with, with the high and the lofty. He doesn't associate with the strong and the, and the rich and the powerful. He scatters the prideful. And, and he, he sends the rich away empty, and he, and he tears down the mighty and the strength of their heart. Those that are raising themselves up against God, he doesn't associate with them. He didn't come in a, in a castle. He didn't come and associate with the Pharisees. He didn't come and associate with the elites. He came as a child. Also, on the other side, he comes and he associates with the humble. He exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. That rather than avoiding and ignoring the humble and the weak and the poor, God enters into their lives. He exalts the humble. He defends the weak. And with his strong arm, he helps the poor. Right? And then verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. Think about that. What master helps their servant? Right? That doesn't happen. Like a servant is the one who helps the master. And if the servant doesn't help the master, what happens? They're fired. Right? What master helps their servant? What master comes down and, and comes alongside the servant and wraps the towel around their waist and washes the feet? God does. That's the condescension of God in our lives. And finally, in 54, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever, God remembers, even though you forget him, even though you forget him hours without end, days without end, months without end, even though you forget God, God remembers you. 
He remembers your prayers. He remembers your tears. He remembers all your moments. And he remembers his promises to love you, to walk with you, to never leave you or forsake you. That is the condescension of our God. And where do we see this most clearly? We see it most clearly all throughout the scriptures in the birth of Christ. The man, God became man. God became flesh. So I'm going to read a quote to you about God's condescension and it had a deep impact on me this week. And so I want you to close your eyes um, so you can listen to it. It's hard to hear a long quote without your eyes closed. And I'm going to read this to you. It says this, The greatest and most wonderful example of God's condescension is in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. God became man and he took on flesh. The creator became a creature. The one who hung the stars lay helpless in a manger. The one who we teach our children is so big and so strong and so mighty became so tiny, so weak, and so powerless. The king of the angels was made a little lower than the angels. The creator of time entered time. The one whose everlasting arms are underneath his people lay vulnerable in his mother's arms. There is no greater condescension. It's beyond illustration, beyond comparison. That God condescends is our only hope in life and in death. Without God's condescension, there would be no salvation for you and me. There would be no good news. It is the glory of our God that he condescends. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Church, Mary sings to you this morning, Behold the God who condescends. Behold the kindness, the hessed love of God for you this morning. I'm going to conclude um, with this. Do you know what Mary's name means? It's two meanings. One is bitter. There's a second one. It's beloved. Beloved. Beloved means the object of hesed, the object of love. And who is God's beloved here on earth now? Who's God's beloved? We are. You are. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are the beloved of God. You are the one who he, he came down to save. And so what that means is that everything that God did to Mary, everything that God could be said about Mary can be said about you as well. Let me ask you, hasn't God in his kindness towards you sent you signs of his love and faithfulness over and over again throughout your journey with him. Hasn't he done that for you? Sent you signs that maybe only you could understand, but you knew, man, God sees me and he's with me. Hasn't God in his kindness towards you sent you encouragers to lift you up when you needed it most? People in your life that came into your life and they weren't concerned with their own concerns, they were concerned with you. They encouraged you. Hasn't God in his kindness towards you through various people and ways shown you that he is with you right when you were in the valley of the shadow of death? He's done that for me over and over again. Hasn't God in his kindness given you grace for genuine joy in the midst of hardship? Haven't you had joy spring up with you on your worst day? You're like, where did that come from? Just like in Mary, it came from the Lord. Hasn't God shown you in your life that he sees you, and that he longs for you, that he'd do anything he can to gain you as his son or daughter? Hasn't God in his kindness given you unshakable makarios, satisfaction and contentment, in the midst of hard days and hard weeks, in the midst of longing for things that you don't have yet, God has given you makarios. He has blessed you beyond measure. 
Hasn't God in his kindness towards you put you in places where you were taught the word of God? And so now today, you're in this room because people in your life, whether it was teachers or pastors or parents or friends, has opened God's word to you. And so now you know God. Hasn't God done that for you in his kindness? And hasn't God in his kindness towards you condescended to you? Hasn't he come down into the muck and mire of your life and come alongside you? Despite your rebellion and sins and failures and shortcomings and weaknesses and limitations and stubbornness and fickle faith and shallow love and over-desire from this world, he, the God of the universe, got down on your level. He took on your weaknesses. He received your limitations and he bore on his back your sin so that you might carry his righteousness and his glory throughout all eternity. That's the condescension and kindness of God towards you. And that's our God. And that's how he sees you. Will you receive that this morning? So we're going to sing. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray. I'd love for us in this last song to really behold God's kindness towards sinners like us. Jesus, I I can't imagine the humility that, that God would become man. The Son of God would become flesh. God, that you would come down and take on our weakness take on our limitations, take on our sin, that you would become poor for our sake so that through your poverty we might become rich. Lord, I pray this morning as we sing about the manger, as we sing about the incarnation, as we sing about the humility of our God, that we would be struck anew, that this God didn't just come down into space and time for people long ago, that he came for us. He came for our souls. He came to win us to himself. He came to carry us into eternity. Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to worship you, Lord, that you would impact our hearts, that you would give us your genuine joy and humility at the condescension of God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We praise things in your name. Amen.